And turn in your Bibles now to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Jesus performs a miracle. The miracle is thoroughly investigated. And then Jesus has some lessons to share with us about spiritual blindness or walking in darkness. And so that's what it's all about. And uh, so I want to begin right away in John chapter 9, looking at the very first two verses here. And uh, that will be the introduction. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was born but was blind from birth. And his disciples, now this is, these are the disciples of the Lord who asked this next question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who is personally responsible for his blindness? Did he sin? I don't know what that means, by the way. I don't, surely we're not talking about reincarnation because disciples wouldn't have believed in that. But maybe kicking mom a little bit too hard while you're in the womb? I, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me. Was he the one responsible for his blindness? Or number two, was his parents, were his parents responsible for his blindness? Now, I got an application for you right off the bat. It seems like everybody's a theologian these days, right? And it seems like everybody has an opinion about everything that happens. But you now need to keep in mind that even though they are mimicking the most important popular opinion of that day, if you'd have walked up to most religious leaders or most people in that day, they would have done the very same thing that the disciples have done. If you would have done that, that's the question that would have been asked, you see. But the question is not always right. You and I already know that Job had three friends who came to him when he was going through his experience and the three friends tried to constantly convince him that he was going through his difficulty because he personally sinned. He wasn't repenting of something he should have been repenting of. He personally sinned in some way, or he was not honoring the Lord. And in 30-some chapters, Job needs to defend himself against his friends that are trying to convince him that he is sick because he sinned. Right? Now you and I know that sickness is not natural. God didn't create us so that we could be sick. It's because of the sin of Adam and Eve that we have to deal with the problem of sickness. It's because of the sin of Adam and Eve that we have to deal with any physical problem. It's because of the sin of Adam and Eve that we deal with death. It's not natural. God didn't create us to die. 
He created us to live forever. And one day he's going to make sure that happens. But you see, we understand that. One thing I don't want to do is take this passage of Scripture and just totally wipe off the fact that we have this problem of sickness because of sin. We have the problem of diseases and impairment and all of that because of sin. I, I, we, we, we can't dismiss that. It's true. But I want you to see what happens next. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. His blindness is not a result of either of those situations. So what am I supposed to do? Well, just keep listening to what Jesus says in verse 3. Jesus said he was born blind for what reason? That the works of God should be revealed in him. That's the reason for it. Now, I have a great application that I think it's very, very important for you and I to to put this in perspective, since, since all that we experience in this life, the curse that we are under is because of sin, period. Because of that, it's almost impossible for you and I to personalize it when it comes to the consequences of sin in our lives. And Jesus makes a very good case of that. A very good case of that here. And so the application that I would give to you is instead of focusing on that particular aspect as to why maybe you have to deal with a debilitating issue or you know someone who does, focus on how God is going to demonstrate his power. How about that? What do you think? Let's focus on how God is going to demonstrate his power instead. Isn't that what Jesus is saying to us? He has had to deal with this because, he, um, because God is going to reveal his power in his ability to heal him. Jesus says in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, the night is coming when no man can work. And you know that what Jesus is saying here is, is that while I'm on this earth for a short period of time, I'm going to be able to work the works of God. And in working the works of God, I am doing it in a very, very urgent manner because the night is coming. And the night is coming for all of us. And the night comes for all of us and we can't work anymore. And you know what Jesus is referring to when he says that. He is referring to death. But then he says to us in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then what did Jesus do next in verse 6? What did Jesus do? Jesus, after he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made some clay with the saliva, and then he took that little ball of clay and anointed the eyes of the blind men with the clay, and he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And did the man obey what Jesus said? He did. The man went and he washed in the pool and he came back seeing. 
I mean, I can't, I can't imagine that. I, I have a hard time understanding what excitement there would have been in him as he was coming back and realizing that he could see he could see colors for the first time ever. He could see trees. He could see the streets. He could see the people. He could see everything for the first time in his life. Having had no idea of what all of that looked like. And so the neighbors are kind of concerned about all of this, you see, because here is this miracle that is performed right in front of them. And in verse 8, the Bible says, The neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this really the same guy? Is this the guy who sat and begged? Is this the one? And some of them said, Yeah, it looks like he's the guy. And others said, Well, he looks just like him. Maybe he has a twin. And, uh, and, and of course, the, the guy who was born blind said, No, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the one who was born blind. And then, therefore they said to him, How is it that your eyes were opened? And he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went. I did exactly what he told me to do. I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, Where is this guy who did this? Where is this man who did this? And he said, I don't know. Now, people have a, a hard time believing in miracles. I'm always amazed when I see in Scripture a miracle, and, and I'm reading a book maybe that's describing that particular event in Scripture, and someone will suggest the idea that, well, um, I don't know. It had to be some natural, natural event. You take the flood of Noah for an example. It's one of my, it's one of my favorites, you know. People will say, well, yes, uh, we, can, we can understand the flood of Noah. Raining 40 days and 40 nights isn't going to do it. But when the Bible says God breaks up all those, those, uh, those uh, caverns that are filled with water in the earth and all of that water is gushing out on the earth, and the mountains uh, were lower back then, and so they rose up and they covered the mountains. I can, I, can, I can understand. I can understand. I can even visualize it. I can even picture that to some degree. But then you always have someone come along and say, well, you know, we have saltwater fish and freshwater fish. How did that happen during the flood when now it's all saltwater? What happened to all the freshwater fish? As if we've got to have a natural explanation for even a miracle. God has had to prove himself by going through natural means in order to create a miracle. And uh, that's where we make our mistake. You see, because we're reluctant to believe in miracles unless there's a rational reason as to why it could possibly have happened. And God doesn't often do that for us. A miracle is a miracle. It's supernatural. It doesn't have to have a natural example. If you come to me and you say, how could there be possibly uh, saltwater fish and freshwater fish in the same oceans now? Uh, I would say God did it. He did it by creating a miracle. 
I could come up with some natural explanations of it, and you could too, you know, that maybe God had some, some fresh water currents, you see, in all of that salt water. But that's, that's not the issue. The issue is we are reluctant to believe in miracles, and all of these people who saw this miracle were very reluctant to believe that it happened. They thought this isn't even the same guy. And so they decided that if anybody's going to be able to sort this out, it's going to be the Pharisees, the religious leaders. So in verse 13, they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees aren't able to deal with it. And the reason why is because they are blinded by their own religious rules and regulations to start with. They can't even get to first base with the Pharisees because what does John say in verse 13? They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. They're turned off automatically. They say this can't be true. This can't be right. This can't have happened because... The man who gave you your sight did all of this on the Sabbath day. And you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath day. You're not allowed to stoop down, spit on the ground, make a little bit of clay out of that. That's working. And then you certainly can't take that clay and apply it to someone's eyes and then heal him on the Sabbath day. You can't do that. You see, they were blinded by their own religious rules and regulations. Now, notice how this conversation goes in verse 13 and following. After it is noted that Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. Now, tell us again how this happened. And he said, well, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. And therefore, some of the Pharisees said, what did they say? This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath day. In other words, if you don't keep the Sabbath day, you're not from God. We can't believe anything else you have to say. Others, however, said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Okay, so, so he's a sinner for what he did on the Sabbath day. But how can he perform these miracles if he's a sinner? And so it just, it just caused a big fight. just caused a bunch of discussion. And the Bible says that there was a great division among the Pharisees as a result of this situation. So now they're, they're, they're arguing among themselves as to what, how they could possibly make sense of all of this. And they say to the blind man again, what do you think uh, about this guy who opened your eyes? Do you have some sense of who you think he might be? Now, I want you to notice the progress for just a second that occurred in this guy's life. This is an excellent example of how a person, the Lord is getting him ready to, to, to save him. Perfect example of that. In up in verse 11, the Bible said that there was a man called Jesus who made clay and anointed my eyes. Now, after all this discussion that we've had, 
I believe that he was a prophet, not just a man, but he was a prophet, verse 17. And he could have gone back to the Old Testament and said, well, there was Moses back there, and there's Elijah back there, and there's Elisha back there, and there are lots of prophets who performed miracles. He says, that's what I think, he's a prophet. But the Jews didn't believe that. And the Bible says in verse 18 that he had been, the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been born blind and received his sight. And they said, well, we're going to have to talk to his parents. And they got his parents together and, and they sat down with his parents and said, now listen, you've got to tell us the truth here. Was your son born blind? And they said, yes, yes, he was born blind. How's come he sees now? And they say, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, if you want to know how he received his sight, I mean, we have the story, but you're going to have to ask him. Let him explain it to you in verse 21 and following. And one of the reasons why they didn't want to get involved in the debate is because they could sense the animosity and the arrogance, and they could sense the ill will that they were experiencing from the Pharisees. And in verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed, already agreed, that if anyone confessed that Jesus or he was Christ, they would ex excommunicate them from the synagogue. So they said, listen, talk to our son. He'll explain it all to you. And they went back to the son. They still cannot believe the miracle. They still are having a huge problem because Jesus did this on the Sabbath day. And in verse 24, they again called the man who was born blind and said to him, Now listen, tell the truth. Give God the glory. Tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner who performed this act of opening your eyes. And he said... I don't know whether he was a sinner or not. I don't know. One thing I know, and this is the only thing I know to tell you, I was blind, but now I see. And they come back and again and say, well, what did he do to you? Could you tell us again what he did? I mean, they're just struggling. This is awful. They're just having a horrible problem with all of this. And uh, so in verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to hear it again? Because you want to become his disciples? I see a little humor in that, but you see, he's really frustrated by this time. Do you want to become his disciples too? Is that why you want to know all of these little details? And they, of course, come back and they're, to just show you their, how, 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 uh, how ill-willed they are, the Bible says that when he makes that mention to him, um, he says that to them, they get pretty upset with him in verse 28. How upset do they get? They revile him. They revile him. And they said, listen, don't you ever connect us with Jesus. You're maybe his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We are disciples of Moses. Well, let's see, Moses was a disciple of Christ, right? 
from the Old Testament perspective. And so that's the situation. We know that God spoke to Moses, as for this fellow, we do not know where he is even from. And then the man answers them in such a way that I'm just absolutely flabbergasted at, at his ability to say what he says next. But the thing that you and I need to keep in mind is here are these religious leaders who have so many rules and regulations about what they think we ought to do and people ought to do that they cannot see clearly to listen carefully to what this man has to say. And we have talked many times in the book of John even about the fact that Jesus wasn't disobeying the law on the Sabbath day when he did good. Jesus would have done the right thing on the Sabbath day. He would not have listened to all the regulations and all of the things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath day, all of the man-made ideas, but he would have honored the Lord in every single way on the Sabbath day, right? There would never have been any problem with that, never. And Jesus often talked about how we can do good on the Sabbath day. But for you to tell me that I am not allowed to heal some on the Sabbath day, you have too much baggage in your lives that are holding you down. And I, I just want to say this to you because it's very, very important for us to understand that here are these religious leaders who are, who are carrying so much baggage in their lives that they cannot see clearly to listen to almost every, anything that the Lord has to say. They just won't. They just won't. We don't believe that way. This is not the way we were taught. These are the things that we're supposed to do. These are the regulations that we're supposed to have. Uh, it kind of reminds me of, um, it kind of reminds me of um, a guy who took his scout troop to Philmont Ranch in New Mexico. And um, Philmont Ranch is that high adventure scout camp uh, reservation where you take your kids for like two weeks and they take a backpack and they go in the woods for, uh, they go into the wilderness for two weeks because that's pretty wilderness down there. And you go into the wilderness for two weeks and then what you do is you, you eat off the land and you eat the, the dried stuff you have and and you stay out there, and hopefully you're going to survive the experience, and you'll come back. But I really like the example of um, Don Aslett, who wrote a book called Clutter's Last Stand. Clutter's Last Stand. Now listen carefully for a second, you see, because these religious leaders' lives are filled with clutter. Filled with clutter. So much clutter that they cannot warm up to the Lord under any circumstances whatsoever. And we'll not listen to anything he has to say. And Don Aslett wrote this book, Clutter's Last Stand, and he gives the illustration of what he calls the pack shakedown. And I just want to give to you his own words when he describes his experience by taking his kids to um, the Boy Scout camp in New Mexico. In 1979, I took 10 Boy Scouts on a two-week trip to Philmont. The 30,000-acre scout camp in the rugged New Mexico mountains. 
sprinkled in the vast wilderness were 20 base camps, each designed to educate scouts in a different subject, gold mines, archaeology, lumbering, mountain climbing, etc., etc., etc. We were to spend 11 days on foot with a pack hiking from camp to camp. We were cautioned before we started out about footwear, bears and snakes, getting lost, etc., etc., etc. Then sensing our junky tendencies, the ranger put us through a pack shakedown, which would be a neat idea for all of us, he says. We had to spread a blanket in front of our tent and dump our packs out on it, showing everything we were going to take on the 11th day hike. It shamefully revealed everything from toothpicks to love notes. Then the ranger walked through the dejunct and dejunct everyone's treasures, giving reasons such as, you won't use this, this is silly, this is too heavy, this attracts bears. Out went the smuggled radios, bulky binoculars, blow dryers, cast iron skillets, comic books, and all that was junk on the trail. The ranger said, we have a tendency on our journeys to take more than we want to end up carrying. I nodded agreement and saw to it that my boys had lightened their loads. Then I spotted the fold-up fishing rod and other things the ranger took out of my bag of goodies. I repacked my Jansport, and when the ranger wasn't looking, threw in some books, a real taboo, a couple of sharpening stones, two wood rasps, and a few other extras in case I had spare time. This made my pack a firm, compact 55 pounds for 10 days and nights in 50 to 98 degree weather, going up and down 10,000 foot peaks, fording slippery streams. I sagged under my pack and stumbled over my dragging feet groaning, promising myself that never again would I take more than I could carry. The journey was no fun. No fun. And you know, I, I have a sneaky suspicion that for most of the Pharisees, the journey, the religious journey they were on was no fun. And Jesus addresses this issue with them. They had made the Sabbath day so cumbersome with adding hundreds and hundreds of rules that aren't in the Bible anywhere and restricting the people so that when the last day of the week came and you were supposed to, supposed to enjoy it, you couldn't feel like you'd do anything but sit there maybe, on, maybe, maybe, maybe in your house and just do nothing for the whole Sabbath day. That's called legalism, right? That's called legalism. And, and Jesus warned us about legalism because what it can do, it can weigh us down. And it can give us the wrong impression about the Lord and how He wants us to enjoy an abundant Christian life and not be burdened with all of the baggage that we bring and these self-restrictions and these... Uh, these regulations that we must feel, to feel that we must follow in order to be acceptable to Him. 
It's a lot more freeing than that. Well, back to the end of the um, account here that we have. So the Bible tells us in John chapter 9 that this man answers them. And in verse 30, here's the th here are the four things that he says to the Pharisees. I'm, I'm amazed at what he says. Number one, he says, number one, I don't understand why, verse 30, I don't understand why you don't know this guy when he does all this wonderful stuff. How is it possible that you can watch these marvelous, these things happen and you, you don't see this as a marvelous thing? I don't understand that. Number two, in verse 31, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. And so the point being that we know that since the world began, we don't have any accounts of anybody opening the eyes of one who was born blind. But if this man were not from God, number four, he couldn't do anything. We know that. I mean, this guy is very perceptive. He, and, and the important thing is to look behind what he says and understand where he's coming from, you see, because God has really prepared this guy to receive Christ. He really has. He really has. In verse 30, the Bible tells us that um, he certainly is gravitating to the Lord because he wants to know more, unlike the, the Pharisees. Uh, 31, he knows more basic theology than the Pharisees are admitting at this point. And um, in verse 32, he sees that Christ is more unique than anybody who's ever showed up on planet Earth. And uh, in verse 33, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And who's the last guy in, 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 um, in John that God was preparing his heart to receive the Lord who said that? Who was he? And back in chapter 3, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said of Jesus when he saw him by night, he said, listen, we know that you come from God because nobody can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. Now, I got to close. I got to close. I don't know how I, how I used all this time. But I, I want you to see verses 35 and, and, and following here for just a second. And I, I, I'm, I promise you I'm not going to labor any of the points here, but to suggest to you that what Jesus does now is he makes a contrast between the Pharisees and, and, and the uh, man born blind. And it's, it's ironic the way he does it, you see, because here's a man who's blind who now can see, and he now is discussing the fact that here are the Pharisees who think they can see, but they're blind. And so in verse 39, <clears throat> I want you to see that Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I was going to start the sermon with that and I was going to say, think about that statement for a minute. 
we are, if we were to listen to what Jesus has to say, Jesus has not condemned anybody yet, right? We've condemned ourselves. But there's judgment when the Lord comes and he deals with these spiritual truths that we are supposed to accept. We either accept them or not. And in, in, in that, we're making a judgment, so to speak. And the fact of the matter is, in verse 39, Jesus is, is in essence saying that, you know, there's some of us who are going blind and life is getting darker and darker for us. And there are others of us who are blind and, light is, and, and life is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And he's not talking about physical sight at all. I think all of us would agree the older we get, the worse our sight gets. But the thing, and the, the problem, he's, you know, um, I can barely see that clock uh, back there. So tell me, am I over? <laughs> yes, I'm over by five minutes. Um, okay, so we got to wrap this up. So he's not talking about physical. He's talking about spiritual light. He's talking about spiritual sight. We are either getting our, our, our sight spiritually is improving or our sight spiritually is digressing or disintegrating. That's what he's talking about. Now, I'm, I'm going to quit here. Uh, instead of uh, going through the rest of this, I'm going to quit here. But I want you to turn to 2 Peter for uh, just a second. 3 through 18. 2 Peter 3 through 18. And the reason why I want to do this is because while I still have your attention, <laughs> I'm smart enough to know that if I go too long, I will lose your attention. I have a hard time staying attentive. But anyway, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, I want you to notice here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, what Jesus has to say, you see. Just take this verse home with you. And uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Here I am in 1 Peter. Here we go. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forevermore. Now what's he mean by that? Well, if I were to brush aside all of the preliminary information that I wanted to give you to get to that point, I would merely say to you that John, the book of John, is all about knowing Jesus. All about knowing Jesus. His emphasis is, you need to come to personally know me. It's not enough to know about me, but you need to come to the place where you want to know me. Here's a perfect example of a guy who wants to know Jesus he wants to grow in Christ, and the Pharisees want nothing to do with him. They're satisfied with where they are, and they will not move in the right direction if their lives depended upon it. John is all about knowing Jesus. Verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. So take it home today and say, listen. I'm going to do like the blind men did. I, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to see the uniqueness of Christ, and I want to experience all that he has done in the lives of what I'm seeing around me and grow and grow 
get to know Christ. And what, I, what have I said on more than one occasion? Let's sit at the feet of Jesus as often as we can. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus as often as we can. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see that we have a choice to either walk in darkness or to walk in the light. We have a choice to either see our spiritual eyes improve and our spiritual sight improve or to see it digress. Father, I pray that you'd help us Help us to take the same attitude as the, as the person whose sight was improving all the time from a spiritual perspective, illustrated by his physical healing. And I pray that all of us together will continue to sit at the feet of Jesus. Lord Jesus, at your feet, we pray that we can sit as our sight improves. In Jesus, your most precious and holy name we pray, amen.